Uh, yeah, so we're looking at Acts chapter 20, and uh, real quick, uh, let's just pray for Pastor Tim, who's still in Ukraine there. Uh, we saw him there. Let's pray for him really quick. Holy Father, I, I thank you for uh, Pastor Tim and his heart for mission. I thank you for uh, providing him opportunities to uh, preach and equip uh, around the globe. And uh, Lord, we just pray that you continue to bless him there and give him safety and fruitfulness to his ministry. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 20 is where we're at this morning. And uh, this passage, it's a little bit unique for the book of Acts because it, it, there's an extended message to believers here. And, and so far uh, this year, we've been looking at the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys around the Mediterranean Sea. And we usually have these fast-paced stories of travels and mighty works and transformation and opposition and every once in a while, it slows down to give us a glimpse at the message that Paul is preaching that's turning the world upside down. But those messages, they're usually uh, to unbelievers. They're usually evangelistic messages. But here, Paul is addressing leaders of the church, uh, the church in Ephesus, which he helped start. And he talks about what his ministry was like there, and he's calling them to continue that work. And so that makes this text really special to me. And it's kind of the end of this section in Acts uh, before Paul goes to Jerusalem where he knows he has enemies who want to see him dead, but he goes anyway, much like his Lord Jesus did over two decades earlier. Uh, but that story is for later. But, so I'll be preaching this week and next week from this passage in Acts 20. This morning we'll look at the message of Paul, and next week we'll look at the heart of the messenger, how the gospel shaped Paul's life and his character, and his ministry. But this morning, we'll talk about this mes his message, which is uh, in Acts 20, 17 through 38. He talks about that. So let's read this text. It's kind of long, so buckle in. Uh, but we can do this. <clears throat> Acts 20, 17 through 38. Now, from Miletus, he set, sent to Ephesus and called the leaders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. 
remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, make your name holy in this time and place. Now, Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. There's seven places in this text where Paul describes the message that he preached to the church in Ephesus. Let me point them out to you, okay? Verse 20, he says he declared that which is profitable or helpful. In verse 21, he says he testified of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 24, Paul says his ministry is to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. In verse 25, he says that he went among them proclaiming the kingdom. In verse 27, he says he declared the whole counsel or plan of God. In verse 31, he did not cease admonishing them or warning them. In verse 32, he commends them to the word of his grace. Now, some of these are familiar ways of talking about the message that we've been entrusted with, and some are not as familiar to us, and some are maybe a little too familiar to where they've lost some of their meaning. So let's look this morning at the message Paul proclaimed, and let's start where Jesus did. Imagine with me, you are one of the apostles. Uh, just for fun, you're one of the apostles that, with a cool name that nobody talks about, like Bartholomew or Thaddeus. But you're not an apostle yet. In fact, you, you haven't met Jesus yet. You've just heard about this itinerant Jewish rabbi from Nazareth, and, and he's done some mighty signs, and, and people are saying he's a prophet. And so you're eager to hear what he has to say. And, and it seems like apparently a lot of other people are eager to hear what he has to say too because you can barely see him through the large crowd of people and, and you're straining to hear, but you can just make out what he's saying. And what do you hear him talking about? What do you hear him saying? Some of the things that are coming to your mind right now are probably just one part or, or one point of his bigger message that he talked about all the time. The broader theme that formed the framework through which Jesus acted and taught. The kingdom. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven. Mark's gospel tells us that when Jesus, what Jesus was saying as soon as he began his ministry in chapter 1, verse 15, it says that Jesus came onto the scene beginning his ministry with this statement, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Matthew's gospel alone mentions the kingdom something like 50 times. When Jesus taught us to pray 
It was about the kingdom of God, God's kingdom, that his rule and his reign would come to earth as it is in heaven. The announcement of the kingdom was Jesus' message, and it was Paul's message. Look at verse 25 of our passage in Acts. Paul says that he went among them proclaiming the kingdom. And I think a great way to think about the kingdom and what it means for us now is using the Lord's Prayer. And I've made a slide uh, to show you what I mean by this. In, In this prayer, Jesus makes it clear what the kingdom is like and what it means to be a part of this kingdom. Notice that kingdom is at the intersection of God's name being hallowed and his will being done. It's a kingdom defined by God's character and his authority. It involves honoring his name as holy, hallowed, that's what that means, and doing his will. And you see the same idea in other teachings of Jesus, right? When he gives us the great commission and the great, great commandment, right? Jesus says that the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And when he gives us the great commission, he says to baptize disciples in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and to teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. And this is what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. Worshiping him and obeying him. Loving him and living for him. And Jesus says that we're to pray that this would happen on earth as it does in heaven. And and the our father part of this is important too because that implies a collection of people. A unity of people who are united under his loving authority. And the very fact that this is a prayer is important because we're asking God to do this, to make this happen. We are dependent upon his power and the strength that he provides. So the kingdom of God is God's rule and his reign that calls and unites a people who are changed by him to honor him as holy and who are empowered by him to do his will. That's what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. You can take that slide down now. And Jesus says that we're to pray this would happen on earth as it is in heaven because that's what Jesus is all about. Notice how Paul also describes his message in verse 27 as the whole counsel of God. More often that word counsel is translated as either purpose or plan. God's big, overarching plan and purpose for you and for the world. What is that? God's plan is to bring his kingdom to earth as it is in heaven, just like Jesus taught us to pray. In the beginning, the king in the beginning of of everything, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth were fully united, right? In Eden, God's kingdom and our kingdom were one, and then they were driven apart because of rebellion against the king of heaven. They didn't honor his name and do his will. They caused a division between God and man, between heaven and earth. And ever since, God has been working to bring them back together. And he had a plan to reunite his kingdom with ours, and it involved binding himself to humanity in the God-man. King Jesus, who is in himself the union of God and man, of heaven and earth. And one day, he will return to fully and finally reunite heaven and earth, over which he will reign as the perfect, loving, holy, and just king. 
And that is the most important part of this, I think, that, that when we look at the beginning and the end of the Bible, when we look at the Garden of Eden and the New Jerusalem, where God's kingdom is not divided from ours, the most notable fact about those images is that God dwells with his people. He talks with them. They honor his name and trust him and obey him. And they, they do this in an intimate relationship with him in his presence. We see this in Eden, and we see it in that glorious scene in Revelation where it says God makes his dwelling with his people. This is what it means for the kingdom to come to earth as it is in heaven. What does Jesus promise us when he sends us out? I will be with you always to the end of the age. How do we sanctify God's name and accomplish his will on earth on, in the metro east as it is in heaven? We do it with him. In a relationship with our king. And when we help others have a relationship with the king of heaven, we are extending the kingdom of heaven on earth. So when we pray this prayer that he taught us to pray, we're praying that, 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 we are praying that heaven would invade earth. Yes, that it, would, that it would come in an ultimate and full and complete way in the future. Yes, but also that it would come here and now, that it would permeate and infiltrate this present age. And this is why Jesus when, and Paul, when they preached the kingdom, they preached repentance. Because it means something for our lives. We all make our own little kingdoms. And we enthrone ourselves. We honor ourselves as holy. And we seek to do our will. And we pursue our own pleasures. And we see ourselves as the main character of our story rather than God. And, and all these little rebel kingdoms are actually just one big, very dysfunctional kingdom of man in rebellion against God. And it's a kingdom of evil and injustice, and it is doomed. I mean, when we look at the global scene today, there's so much ugliness in the world, it's pretty easy to see that the world is messed up, right? But why is it that way? Because there's something wrong with us. We are self-destructive rebels against the rightful king. And the Bible tells us that we need rescuing. And on a large scale, it's not that hard to prove, right? But here's the thing. The moment it becomes personal and we turn the spotlight on me and I start examining my own life and my own motivations and values and so on, all of a sudden I start minimizing how messed up I am and all the brokenness. And I'm like, well, you know, you know I'm just... Yeah. And all of a sudden it becomes, it's conveniently the lines of good and evil are clear when it comes to other people, but not so clear when it comes to me. We're so prone to self-deception. And here's the thing. Raise your hand if you're older than 20. Okay, that's, that's, pretty, that's most of us. All of us who raised our hand, we were born into what historians call the bloodiest century the world has seen. So there's not much hope that the world's getting better. That took millions and millions of people contributing to injustice and evil. Millions of people looking at their own lives and motivations and thinking, yeah, I'm basically a good person. See, Jesus tells us that if the big evils we all agree on as evil are these raging wildfires, well, we all have within us the sparks that ignite those fires. 
We see these hellfire plagues of racism and human trafficking and oppression and, and injustice of all kinds, and we see how they're destroying our world, and we want them gone. But Jesus is even more serious about this than we are because he wants to get rid of the sparks that ignite those fires. He wants to get rid of the pride and the lust and the greed and the contempt and the selfishness. He confronts that evil and he wants to remove it from this world, all of it, and he wants to remove it from us, from you. So he calls us to continually turn to him with these sparks, so that he can douse them with his spirit and his mercy and his love and transform us. And sometimes even within Jesus' church, his, his new community, these sparks collide and they catch flame. But he's telling us you can never put out a fire with more sparks, which is what our broken instinct is. Only with water and with love, and with the Spirit. This is the path of repentance. Humbling ourselves before the good and rightful King of the world and trusting Him above our own self-deceptive hearts and submitting to His good and just reign. And I love how Paul phrases this in verse 21 when he says it's repentance toward God. We generally think of repenting from things. But to Paul and to Jesus, what you turn from is not nearly as important as what you turn to. Repentance is the idea of turning, but you're never just turning away. You're always turning toward something. And if you're just turning away from things without turning toward something else, you're just spinning in circles, which unfortunately is the case for many Christians who are known more for what they're against than what they're for. I heard someone ask, what's the easiest way to get the sin of air out of a glass? Is it to put a vacuum on top and try to suck all the air out? No, in fact, if you do that, most glasses would shatter due to the pressure difference. The best way to get the air out of the glass is to fill it, the glass with water. If you want to get the air out of a glass, you just fill it up with water. And the same is true of us. We must be filled with something more dense and substantial. And that is when the air, the sin, is expelled or replaced. And there's one person to whom we turn to be filled. There's only one person to turn to to truly satisfy your deepest longing and bring lasting peace to our restless hearts. So the call of repentance, it's, it's not a harsh, judgmental demand, as we can think of it. It's a beautiful and merciful call toward life and transformation. Because Proverbs says there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And Jesus sees us on that path that we think is fine, but he knows is leading to death. And he says to us, you are on a path that will destroy you. And I love you. So I want you to have life and joy. So turn off that path and follow me. Because the path that we are on, it's more like a river, like a current with a destructive cliff at the end. And this is why Paul says that he didn't cease to admonish them or warn them in verse 31, making sure that they were aware of the dangers, the dangerous paths and that they will be tempted toward. I spoke to our community group leaders a couple weeks ago, and I mentioned the dangerous currents that leader, leaders can fall into. 
and the kind of repentance that, it, that leaders are called to. But really, the same danger applies to all of us. As Christians, as people, we can get caught in these two currents. The first is the, the lazy river of comfort and complacency and even apathy. And the other current is the white water of ambition and pride. And they seem to be like two very different situations. One, we're just drifting. And the other, we're paddling hard. But in both, we are going with the current. And both currents take us to places we do not want to be. Jesus calls us not to go with the current, but to go with him upstream. Jesus is calling those who drift in, in, in the current of complacency and apathy and self-indulgence to take up their paddles and turn around and make their way upstream with him. And he's calling the rafters in the white water of pride and ambition and selfish ambition to, to turn around as well. And if you embrace this call, I don't want you to be under any illusions. The drifters, they'll find their muscles atrophied. And the paddling is very difficult at times. And the rafters, may even, it may even seem impossible to, for, to you to make your way upstream in that white water. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Jesus will paddle with you. And you will find yourself growing stronger as you paddle with him. In both currents, we need to turn around. That's repentance. But the current is still there. So our repentance must be sustained. And that sustained repentance, that's the life of faith. Each paddle is a paddle of repentance and faith. And, and this new aim of our lives, this new direction, this new path, it will have its own distinctive challenges, which is why Paul says in verse 20 that he taught them that which is profitable or helpful. And in verse 21, he testified not only to repentance toward God, but also its counterpart, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul not only warned people and called them to repentance, but he also taught them that which is helpful. And he, and he called them to live by faith. Now, what does he mean by what's profitable or helpful? Uh, well, he uses that same Greek word when he writes to the church in Corinth, and, and he helps us understand what he means with this simulated back-and-forth debate. He quotes the reigning motto of ancient Corinth, all things are lawful for me. And then he, he responds by saying, but not all things are helpful. Same word as in Acts 20. The motto comes again, all things are lawful for me, and he responds a second time with, but I will not be dominated by anything. And then a few chapters later, the debate happens again. All things are lawful. And, and he says, but not all things are helpful. And it comes a fourth and final time. All things are lawful. And he says, but not all things build up. See, Paul says, Christ gives us eyes to see that not all things are helpful for me or helpful for others or acceptable to my witness in this world. It's wisdom. And we need to learn it in order to not be dominated or enslaved by anything, and in order to be able to build others up in love. So this pursuit of true freedom and, and pursuit of building ourselves and others up, this is helpful, what he means. And, and so we fight the fight of faith both internally and externally, right? This, I think this is the, the external front where we, we flee from temptation and we remove obstacles to our faith and we develop healthy habits of grace 
But we also have to fight on the internal front where we fix our, the eyes of our hearts on the glory of Jesus so that the, the void that we try to fill with the things of the world instead is filled with his love. This is the faith that Paul calls us to in verse 21. And just like it's important to see that our repentance is toward God, it's important to see that our faith is in the Lord Jesus. Because here's the thing. Faith is not significant in and of itself. Faith is not what saves you. It's not just like that you're a person of faith, especially the way it's talked about today, like it's a general optimism that things will turn out okay. Just have faith. It's definitely not able to save you. And it's not significant in itself. The object of your faith is what is significant. And there's only one person who can save and restore your soul. The only faith that matters is faith in Jesus because placing our faith in Jesus is placing our lives in Jesus. Paul loves to talk about this in Jesus reality in his letters because our salvation is not just something that Christ acquires for us and gives to us. Our salvation is receiving the living Christ himself. Christ is our salvation. Salvation means that we are really, intimately, supernaturally united to the Savior. The author Rebecca McLaughlin wrote that uh, we get a hint of this union in pregnancy. For instance, when my daughter Evergreen was in the, the womb of my wife Audrey, her life was completely contingent on her mother's life. We, we felt her move around freely in, in, in that womb, but she didn't control her ultimate location, right? Where Audrey went, Evergreen went. In a similar way, we too are only truly alive in Jesus, united with him. Just as, as Evergreen was, was enfolded in Audrey's body and dependent on her blood and protected by her immunity and, in, and housed in her love, Audrey and Evergreen were truly united. And through our faith in Jesus, we similarly are dependent upon him and united with him. Where Jesus goes, we go. As he lives, we live. Everything that he deserves, we gain. What an extraordinary thought. But that's only true because everything that we deserve, he took. He died our death. And he took our punishment. And so he is our resurrection and our life. And faith is the only way to be grafted into the vine of Christ because it is the one human act that calls attention only to God's merit rather than our own. Pastor Tim a couple of weeks ago did a great job of explaining that saving faith is not just an agreement in the head with facts about Jesus. If that's the case, your faith is no different than the faith of demons, who James says both believe and tremble. Knowing and agreeing with truth is necessary, but it's not enough. It's not, it's not, it doesn't make you a Christian. So what is saving faith like? Well, Pastor Tim explained that you must be born again. And that supernatural rebirth what happens there is it turns our hearts toward God. The essential change is this, that we see Jesus as valuable and worthy and able 
To go back to our analogy of the currents, the, the, two, the rivers, once our soul was satisfied, or so we thought, in how we were drifting down that river. And then we see Jesus going the, what seems to us to be the wrong way. He looks like a fool. And then he asks us to get in that boat with him. And he tells us we will have to paddle with him. But not to worry, because it's ultimately his paddling that will take us where we need to go. And what will happen to us, what needs to happen to us, for us to get into that boat? Well, we have to trust him that he's taking us somewhere we want to be. And we have to trust him that he's able to get us there. And most importantly, we have to want to be with him in that boat. That's what it means to be born again. You want to be with him, going where he's going, and you trust that he is able to get you there because you know you are too weak. And that recognition, that's the beginning of grace. That's what St. Augustine says when he says, to desire the aid of grace is the beginning of grace. Uh, Our final pair of descriptions about grace Paul's message has to do with grace. Paul describes his message as the gospel of the grace of God in verse 24. And then he also calls it the word of grace, which is able to build you up in verse 32. Our message, our gospel, is one of grace. Our God is a God of grace. When Paul says the gospel of God's grace, that word gospel, it's closer to that idea of kingdom than you might think. Remember that text in Mark that we looked at where Jesus began his ministry with the proclamation of the kingdom of God? Well, twice in that same text, the kingdom message is called the gospel. And that's because when it was written, the word gospel had a specific meaning. The gospel, a gospel was objective, history-changing event that everyone had to respond to. Usually the enthronement of a new king. For example, there's an ancient Greek document outside the Bible that reads like this. This is the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. And that sounds strange to us, but that's what the word gospel meant. It was the declaration that he had ascended to the throne, and he was sent out by heralds to declare the gospel of Caesar Augustus. You see, because the word gospel is news. It's considered good news by the sender and the, the herald of it. It's news of a major history-changing event that everyone needs to respond to. And Paul proclaimed the gospel of the grace of God. There's a new king over all the nations, and he welcomes them all (laughs) under his rule, to live under his reign, not just as subjects, but as family and, and Jesus, he's a different kind of king who doesn't reign through coercion and aggression and power, but who reigns through self-sacrificing love and grace. Grace is the beauty and the scandal of Paul's message because it is sheer gift. Which, which this idea of free gift, it scandalizes our autonomous sense of entitlement, doesn't it? Because it means we can't earn it. The idea is humbling, and it's a, so it's, a, it's an affront to our pride and our sense of accomplishment. But it's beautiful 
for those who have come to the end of themselves and wonder if there's help. Someone who wrote beautifully about this is Joy Davidman, who was married to C.S. Lewis for four years before she died of cancer. Uh, I, I think I've quoted C.S. Lewis in every sermon, so I figured I'd quote his wife now. But she, she was also an author. But before she married C.S. Lewis, she was an atheist and a communist. And she was married to another man who was an unfaithful alcoholic and workaholic. And one day her husband called her having some kind of a nervous breakdown. And he hung up abruptly. And she frantically called all day. But by night she says there was nothing to do but wait and see if he turned up alive or dead. She was terrified about what was happening with him. And she she put her children to bed and she waited. And she writes this about that night. For the first time in my life, I felt helpless. For the first time, my pride was forced to admit that I was not, after all, the master of my fate and the captain of my soul. All my defenses, the walls of arrogance and cocksureness and self-love behind which I had hid from God, went down momentarily. And God came in. There was a person with me in the room, directly present to my consciousness. A person so real that all my previous life was by comparison mere shadow play. And I myself was more alive than I had ever been. It was like waking from sleep. Notice how she said she recognized. For the first time she felt helpless. And she recognized that she was not the master of her fate. And the captain of her soul. She realized the futility of living as though you are the king of your own life. And that is when the true king stepped in. And when he did, he began graciously remaking her. She goes on to say this, My perception of God lasted perhaps a half minute. In that time, however, many things happened. I forgave some of my enemies. I understood that God had always been there, and that since childhood, I had been pouring half my energy into the task of keeping him out. I saw myself as I really was, with dismay and repentance, and seeing, I changed. I've been turning into a different person since that half minute, everyone tells me. I could not doubt the truth of my experience. It was so much the realest thing that had ever happened to me. And in a gentler, less overwhelming form, it went right on happening. I love that. She says the same experience of her conversion kept on happening though in a less overwhelming form. What a beautiful way of talking about the Christian life. Perpetual conversion. Ongoing grace. We are utterly dependent upon God and His power. As we submit to that, bowing our lives to the King of grace, He continues to form us into new people. This is what Paul is talking about in verse 32 he, when he commends them to the word of God's grace, which he says is able to build you up. See, grace isn't just the way that we get in. It's the way we stay. It's not just forgiveness. It's not just an acquittal or covering. It's a power, an infusion, a a resurrection, a revolution of the heart and its desires. It's the hand of God who made you and loves you, reaching into your soul with the gift of His Spirit. Grace transforms you. We are utterly dependent on God's grace to live this life of faith. Grace is the way we live as Christians. And it's the way we become Christians. 
So if you find yourself at times hoping for a grace from beyond yourself, you don't, that's a sign that grace is already at work. You don't have to believe in order to ask. You can ask for help believing too. Keep asking. Grace is there. The desire for grace is the first grace. And coming to the end of your self-sufficiency is the first step toward embracing Christ's sufficiency. And he is sufficient and able and worthy. He is the gracious king who took what you deserve to give you what he deserves. He invites you to turn toward him, to live with him. Some of you, this invitation is there for the first time. Some of you for the thousandth. To each of us, our response is the same. To turn toward him and trust in him. And he will welcome you and empower you with grace and love. Turn to him now. Trust him now. Let's pray. Our Father, we turn toward you now. We trust in you. Transform our hearts as we follow you and participate in your kingdom. Make our whole lives to be lived in worship and service to you, recognizing that you are our true and rightful king and the only one who gives more than you take. We commend our hearts to you now, Lord, and to the word of your grace, which is able to build us up and give us the inheritance among all your people whom you have called and changed. We pray in the presence and the power of your Son, Jesus. Amen.